what I consistently hear over and over again is this is going to be a very deep and severe recession. And so what we're doing to prepare for that is number one, build up reserves. Because as long as you truly, generally, you only lose money with real estate is if you're forced to sell it or lose it at an inopportune time. Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate, from co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, I buy multifamily properties with passive investors who partner with me on my deals. If you're thinking about investing passively in real estate and you want to learn how to evaluate a deal, especially today, I created a free guide that walks you through the top five critical deal components that any passive investor must examine. You can find it on my website, www.elliperlman.com. Okay, so let's get started. My guest today is Andrew Cushman, principal of Vintage Point Acquisitions. Andrew left his corporate position back in 2007 to start his business in real estate investment. Andrew acquires B-class value-add properties throughout the Southeast and has acquired and repositioned over 1,800 multifamily units to date. Outside of the business world, Andrew has been a certified alpine ski instructor. When not working in real estate, he enjoys surfing, backcountry skiing, and trying to not be outwitted by his own two small children. That's really interesting. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Ellie. Absolutely. So you have two little kids. Yep. Two boys. They definitely keep me on my toes. And now that's even more of a full-time job since we're all in the house all day. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I hear you. I mean, I don't have kids, but I can definitely imagine the fact that you're actually recording this and there's quiet and nobody is jumping behind you. That's pretty remarkable. We'll see if we get all the way to the end. Let's. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Andrew, can you share with the audience a little bit more about your background and how you started investing in real estate? Uh, I used to be a chemical engineer. That was the degree I got in college. And interestingly enough, in high school, I knew I wanted to have my own business, but I didn't know what. So I liked chemistry. I liked problem solving. So I said, well, I'll get a chemical engineering degree so I can do something that's at least tolerable and have a good income until I figure out my real calling. Moved out to California, got married. My wife kind of had the same idea. We tried all kinds of crazy businesses. We made popcorn in the kitchen, you know, made a mess. It tasted great, but we're like, this is way too much work. We sold stuff online and, you know, all those little businesses made a little money, but we realized, hey, in order to scale this, it's going to be a lot of work and really could just be another job. So then in 2007, we, we were introduced to flipping. And we did our first deal right towards the end of 2007. I basically made as much as I did at my job all year and said, you know what? 
this is it, let's go. So right as the recession came, I walked in, quit my job. Everyone thought we were absolutely nuts. Went into flipping. It was a great time to do it because everyone else was running away scared. We had no competition. And we just bought things at a really big discount and then sold them at a little bit of a discount. And so even in the worst of the downturn, we never, never took more than 30 days to sell a property. And so we did really well for a few years on that. And then in 2009, we had a great year. And then 2010 was good. But we realized word was getting out. The deals were starting to dry up. And we said, oh, what's going to be the next big thing? And we said, well, we're coming out of a recession. That means we're going to have employment growth. So that's good for apartments. All these people just got foreclosed on, so they can't buy a house for the next five to seven years. So they got to live somewhere. So they're probably going to go rent apartments. Well, all right. So I think apartments is the next thing. So we went and found a mentor, a guy who had done about 800 units already. And he was actually a paid mentor, helped us out, guided us through the process. Our first deal was a mostly vacant 92 unit property in Macon, Georgia, which I don't ever recommend anyone do that um, to make as your first deal. <laughs> I was about to ask, a vacant property, 96 units, all vacant for your first property? Mostly vacant, about 75% vacant. And wow. then the people that were still there, you can probably guess as to the, the quality of the remaining tenant base because anyone who will put up with that kind of situation, you know, acquiring that and turning that around is probably one of some of the most stressful six month periods of my life. That's probably why I'm half gray now. But it got us in the business. It taught us a lot. It did end up being profitable. And like you said, we've been doing it full time since then and about 1800 something units now and uh, love the business and the opportunity that it brings. So. Awesome. That's, that's pretty awesome. I have to say very bold move to purchase a 97 unit apartment building for your first time and have three quarters of it vacant. I, I do not recommend anyone to go through that route, even though if you did, I mean, kudos to you. This is very impressive. Yeah, it was either bold or naive. I'll, I'll let everyone else decide. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about the asset class that you are focused on. So you're very, you're huge on B-class assets. This is the majority, I assume, of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to focus on class B assets? And maybe before that, kind of walk our audience through the difference between the different asset classes. We have A, B, C, and maybe sometimes D classes. So perhaps that would be the first part of the question. Yeah. And it's a little bit market specific, right? Like a B in Orange County, California is probably going to be an A in rural Georgia or something like that, which is where we invest primarily is, is in Georgia. So it's market specific and it's a little bit dependent, right? If you're looking at one property, a broker is going to tell you it's a C plus and you're going to look at it and go, ooh, this might be a C minus. But generally speaking, an A class property or you know, A plus or even sometimes they call it double A AA or triple A, that's your brand new luxury stuff, all the newest amenities, probably downtown, high walkability, you may you don't need a car. You know, that's kind of your A property. It's probably built within the last, you know, five, you know, zero to 10 years. That's generally kind of, you know, that's an A. Your B property is a property that's maybe 20 years old, maybe 30 years old, especially if it's been rehabbed a little bit. It's more of your kind of gray collar to strong blue collar and we're more kind of your workforce housing. People that have solid jobs, have solid incomes, maybe could buy a house, but don't want to and just kind of opt for the renter lifestyle. Generally, that's where we find the highest demand. It's kind of that mid-level B-class property. C-class is 
typically maybe um, warehouse workers, retail workers, people who you know are working in restaurants. They're generally very you know hardworking folks. Might be working two jobs probably can't buy a house and are generally considered to be renters for life. But again, you know, typically, and you may have a little bit of section eight, you know, assistance in there. And then D properties are basically, you know, if you show up, you should be packing heat, you know, where you're going to have people who might be, you know, not, you know, have questionable sources of income. They probably weren't screened to get in. There's high crime and it's this, you know, it can be a dangerous environment. And typically those are, you know, when you think of your classic slumlord, most of those are your D properties. So. Right. Mm-hmm. And you focus on class B assets. Yeah, we started in class C, which is very typical for people just getting into the business. They're very attractive on paper, but you quickly find out that it doesn't always work that way in real life. And what we discovered is with B class properties, you can get just as good, if not better returns with far less risk and far less headache. So we, over the course of the last few years, we've basically sold off anything that would be can really considered a C or true C. And we refocused our acquisitions to be class B. And then our portfolio that was B, those are the ones we've held on to. Can you explain a little bit more? Because I think it's a very interesting concept. And you know what you just said that basically you can get similar returns with class B with less risk. What do you mean by that? How do you, you know, what kind of perceived incentive there is to buy C that you actually see that incentive also with B assets? Yeah, what happens with the C property is, you know, they're typically higher cap rates. And so, and you're getting, you're paying lower prices. So number one, especially if you're just getting started, they're cheap, quote, cheaper properties. So it's easier to say, well, I can afford this. I can take this down. Right. And, you know, on the spreadsheet, they look great. But in reality, what happens is when you get in there, especially if it's an older property and you didn't come in with a large amount of CapEx in front, is those old, the recurring capital expenditures on old C-class properties sucks the financial life out of the property. And what happens is we're all taught, oh, put $300 a unit per year for CapEx, right? Well, that's fine if you're getting a nicely renovated property and you're going to hold it for three years. But the real number on a C-class property, and actually the National Apartment Association came out with a study about a year ago that said the real number is between $800 and $1,100 a unit as far as your recurring CapEx. Well, yes, that doesn't come out of the NOI, but it still comes out of your pocket. So if you're trying to make distributions, that's still sucking cash out of the deal and you're not going to be able to make your pro forma, you're not going to be able to make your distributions. And so that's probably one of the biggest reasons that they see properties don't quite turn out how they look on spreadsheets. The other is you just typically have much higher economic vacancy. You have higher delinquency, higher tenant turnover, which leads to turnover expenses and all those kind of things. Now, that's not to say you can't make good money on C properties. I mean, we certainly did. And, and I'm sure you know a lot of other people have as well. But when I look back at the last recession and seeing properties that came up in 2009 and 10 and then tracking them over the next eight years, what I saw was the B-class properties in many cases like I said, made just as much, if not more profit than the Cs. And part of the reason for that is B-class properties typically trade at a slightly lower cap rate than C-class properties. So if you buy a B-class 
and you increase the NOI by $100,000 and then you buy a C class down the street and you also increase the NOI by $100,000, the B class property with a lower cap rate, that created a whole lot more value because you're dividing that increased NOI by a smaller cap rate. So yeah, so that's why when we looked at our portfolio and, and kind of traced properties over an eight-year period, we realized the B class actually made more money than the C. Right. Because basically, for those who don't really know how you determine the price of the asset, basically, there is a correlation between the price, the net operating income, which is income minus expenses before you pay the debt. And then you also have the cap rate, which is kind of market supply and demand. I think the national average pre-COVID at least was between five and five and a half percent. And basically, you know, NOI over price is equal to the cap rate. And that's basically how you determine it. So if you have, you're right, if, if two properties are generating similar income, but one is trading at a lower cap rate that translates into a much higher price. Now, I understand your position and I share it, by the way, with 100% between B and C class. What about A class? What do you think about that asset you know, class right now, especially in, in the COVID environment? And especially since you said, you said, you know, class C tend, they tend to have higher capex, which class A usually don't have. What are your thoughts? Yeah, class, class A is interesting. And that's, well, we'll say the caveat is class A is definitely not my expertise, but kind of going with the theme of the lower cap rate in a strong market, if you've got an A class property and you can figure out how to add that same $100,000 of NOI, because the class A's tra- trade at an even lower cap rate typically than the B's, you're now you're going to create an even bigger amount of value by doing that. And that's part of why people can make so much money in like California real estate is because not that the cash flow is that great, but the cap rates are so low that if you increase the cash flow, you can really create a lot of equity. So that's that's why you hear you know so much money can be made in California real estate. We're more cash flow oriented, so that's part of why we're not here. The interesting thing about class A in a recession. You know, if you're maybe an A minus or an A that's five or 10 years old and well located, that's probably a, a good property to own. What I would be really concerned about is if you are new construction that's not leased up and or there's new construction coming online nearby, that's going to be a really tough lease up in the current environment. So that's where class A gets kind of dangerous is if you're in a market with a lot of new construction and then the market turns like it just did you can get caught in a very dangerous position. Also, in a recessionary environment, especially once the overall cultural mindset shifts and people get, oh, I need to be cautious, I need to save money, and you know, I'm not then they say, you know what, instead of spending three thousand dollars a month for a one bedroom in this mid-rise tower, you know, I I can spend two thousand for a similarly sized unit in this property that's 15 years older. I'm gonna go live here for now. And so people tend to drift down from the A properties to the A minus and the Bs so they can save money and have a more comfortable lifestyle. So yeah, so it's kind of the middle tends to be the most stable. And then the, the extremes, meaning the high A's and the low C's, those tend to swing the most when we get into, into different parts of the cycle. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think what's interesting is that back in 07 and 08, the investors that have invested in class C, it turned out to be a very, very lucrative, mm-hmm. for the most part, decision. And I saw the same mindset today 
where basically people are, are saying, I'm going to keep buying C-class assets. And my response to that is, but this crisis is not similar to 2008, because back then, if you think about it, those who lost their their homes, their their mortgages were those who shouldn't be getting those to begin with. Where can they go? They can only go to C, maybe D, C properties. And this is where the demand just rose overnight. You are one of the only people I've heard say that. And I think you are dead on. You're absolutely right. I think that's what what happened then and what's happening now, class C is actually not the best performer because you have those who are living from paycheck to paycheck and they're the ones who are washing our cars, washing our hairs, delivering goods, and they don't have a job now. Right. And those in class B and, and A, obviously also, they work in more sophisticated jobs remotely. So some of them are still having a job. Some of them have two providers in a household. So if one is getting la- being laid off, they still have some money to pay the rent. So that's why I think I absolutely love your strategy. You know, Focusing on B assets, I think staying in the middle proved itself. It was solid back then in 08 and it's still solid right now. Yeah. I just wanted to share that. So another question I have for you is, so you're focused on class B assets. What steps have you taken in today's environment? You know, where COVID is is still out there. We're recording right now. It's May 7th. We're probably going to release it around June time. And hopefully, you know, we're going to have a a bit more clarity every month. We get more clarity into the market. But what are your thoughts about the best ways to protect your assets during a pandemic or in a recession like what we have today? What we're doing, and as well as some of the other operators that I you know, regularly stay in touch with, is the number one thing is to build cash reserves as much as possible. And especially while we've had the blessing and the benefit that April came out pretty good, we're expecting May and June to probably be pretty good as well. Hopefully that's the case by the time this airs. <laughs> but really our bigger concern is, is what does this look like longer term, right? When we get into fall and winter, which is typically kind of the weaker part of the season anyway, and by then the stimulus checks will have been received and spent and gone. The unemployment benefit boost will be gone. And who knows what else the government may do to help. I'm sure they'll do additional things and that's definitely a wild card. But the reality is, is most of the you know, when you listen to like Sam Zell and Bill Gates and the head fund, you know, all the, all the really big people that are far smarter and experienced than I am, what I consistently hear over and over again is this is going to be a very deep and severe recession. And so what we're doing to prepare for that is number one, build up reserves. Because as long as you truly, generally, you only lose money with real estate is if you're forced to sell it or lose it at an inopportune time. As long as you can cash flow and pay your expenses and pay the mortgage, then you can you can ride it out, and eventually, eventually things will come back, and they probably will come back with a vengeance, right? And we want to be in real estate when that happens. And then in the meantime, your tenants are still helping you build equity by paying down the mortgage. So number one is asset preservation, and so that's building reserves, cutting expenses. And Ellie, I know you've had some people on who've mentioned some great way to cut expenses. Two things that I think I haven't heard yet that we did is number one, our managers went through, and especially if you've got larger properties, this can happen, but our managers went through all of our vendor accounts and looked for accounts where we had credits, like maybe we had returned some appliances or something like that. And when we were ordering supplies, we went, instead of 
ordering and paying with with money we actually just said we're going to we're going to use our credits right so that can add up significantly on on you know the, the bigger the property the more that can add up cuz you know having vendor credits is just a part of normal business so we went through and make sure that we used all of that right away. Another thing I would encourage people to do, especially if you've been doing a renovation and doing like renovation draws or CapEx, don't forget to use your replacement reserve account. If you have a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan, they've been pulling money every month and setting it aside to make sure there's funds there for CapEx. And there was one property that we have, it's 150 units. We just finished about a $1.2 million renovation. So we hadn't been using our replacement reserve account. So we went ahead and got caught up on that. And we got just over $100,000 released that the lender was holding Mm -hmm. for our replacement reserve account. And so now that goes into our cash reserves and puts the property in a much more comfortable position. And so we've gone through and done that with our other properties as well. And the numbers weren't quite as big, but even if you get 10 grand released, that's 10 grand that is now in your account that can be used for whatever comes up. So, you know, build reserves, look for ways to cut costs, look for found money like those accounts. And then also you can repurpose staff. You know, I've heard of some people recutting staff. I I disagree with that, especially if you have a really good team in place because your your on-site team and your management, that is I mean, that is absolutely key. They are some of the most key players in the success of your properties. So like, for example, you know, maybe leasing people aren't quite as busy right now because no one can come in and do tours or th- so they're, they're instead they're focusing on making better videos and, and 3D tours and our maintenance guys, they, they're, you know, they're not going inside of units unless it's an emergency. So, hey, you know what? We've cut back on the landscapers and instead our maintenance guys are doing some of the landscaping, right? We keep our good team members paid and we've let them know like your job is secure. You're not going to lose your job because of this. We're going to find a way to keep everyone on board and, and get through this. And that's some of the ways that we've been doing it. So they're thankful. They're appreciative. They're motivated. You know, the residents see the staff like pitching in in new ways. And so it cuts costs, it keeps the keeps your team in place, and then sets the property up for, you know, to survive this. And, and we even did that with our acquisitions team, is their role back in March, we switched them to, instead of 90% acquisitions and 10% asset management, they are now 90% asset management and 10% acquisitions for, for the time being, that, that will go back eventually. And just doing things like, you know, things that the managers might not have the time or ability to do. Whereas our former acquisitions team is doing all kinds of research on all the programs that can help renters, you know, PPP, if they have a business, how to get your stimulus check. Here's a list of all the employers in your town that are hiring, you know, Amazon and Walmart and all that. And we make the flyers and we provide it to the manager so they don't have to worry about it. And then they can send it out. You know, we started all that back in March. I really, I think that's a big part of why our collections actually increased in April over March is because just changing the focus to just asset management and preservation is number one. So, so many great tips. It's, it's really amazing. I think just changing the way you see the business and moving, shifting, you know, employees priorities, shifting the businesses and priorities. That's great. I think there's a lot of golden nuggets there. So I hope if you're listening, I hope you took some notes because <laughs> these lines can save you a lot of money. And I share, you know, some of the things that you've mentioned we, we've been doing as well, but I, I definitely learned some new ways. You gave me some some new ideas on, you know, what to implement in, in our business. So uh, that's great. I want to kind of shift and talk a bit about strategy. You, in your business, you reposition 
properties. Now, for those who are not really sure what repositioning means, and I know also some invest, different investors have different kind of interpretation of the word, the phrase repositioning. Can you briefly explain what that is? Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. It, it, there's a lot of different ways and definitions of that. For us, in general, repositioning a property could mean like taking it from a C to a B, right? Now, of course, the reverse is people who ignore their properties and it goes from a B to a C, but that's not what we're trying to do. And especially the last few years, you would see people come in, buy a C-class property, spend $25,000 a unit, just gutting it, fully renovating it and taking it to like an A minus or something like that. And that works in certain like urban environments, like there's parts of Dallas where that worked really well, parts of Atlanta that worked really well. I mean, lots of places. For us, reposition was typically a combination of improving management, bringing in professional management. We partner very closely with a really experienced third-party property management company. So there's the management aspect of it, and then there's the physical aspect of it. So yeah, we might be buying a property that was built in 1985, and the exterior looks a little bit tired. Maybe the landscaping has been ignored. And so we will come in and we'll First thing we do is you know have everything lined up so the day after we take over we're improving the exterior curb appeal and then yeah we would go in and typically spend maybe you know anywhere the entire project would be somewhere between probably five and ten thousand dollars a unit I think the most we ever did was twelve and we're doing kind of your standard upgrades I mean nothing that your you your listeners probably haven't already heard about the appliances the vinyl flooring agreeable gray on the walls and then new hardware maybe some two inch window blinds. And then typically we're buying, you know, rents can go up a hundred, hundred twenty-five dollars or something like that. And so we'd be taking a, maybe a property from a C plus to a B, or maybe a B minus to a B or B plus. So we generally see that as kind of a, a light to moderate repositioning. The key is is the neighborhood property is located in has to support it, right? Right. It's almost impossible if you've got a C in a C neighborhood you're fighting against the current if you're trying to take that C to a B. That The neighborhood's going to keep pulling you back down. So what we're always looking for is maybe a C plus that's in a B plus neighborhood or a B property that's in an A minus neighborhood because then all we're, trying, all we're doing is bringing it up to really where it should be with a neighborhood and that will support your repositioning. So that, that's really a key piece of it that I think is often overlooked. Yeah, of course, because in a bad neighborhood, nobody who's able to pay even $2,000, $3,000 for one bedroom, they're not going to want to live there. So the neighborhood definitely has to support the asset class. Do you do anything different in today's environment when it comes to repositioning? Yeah, the repositioning model that has worked for the last you know seven or eight years is probably actually, I'd say, dangerous right now. Heading into a recession, it's dangerous to say, well, I'm going to spend $8,000 a unit renovating and bump rents $125. You know, as people lose jobs, as people get more conservative with their spending, it becomes less and less likely that they're going to either be able to or want to pay for those upgraded units. So at this point, we look for more of kind of management upside and maybe future physical upside or repositioning. So I'll give an example. We were actually under contract to purchase a property when this hit, and we have that contract just kind of on hold for a couple of months until we get a better feel of what the the environment that we're in is, is going to kind of play out, how that's going to play out. There are two pieces of that. There's definitely a, a management piece, and there's also a physical, there's very clear 
opportunity to do some upgrades and bump rents. So if we move forward with that property, how we're going to underwrite it now is going to say, well, we're still going to do the exterior improvements because we all you always want to have good curb appeal, good first impression. That sets the tone. You may have a beautiful interior, but if someone drove through the outside and you're like, geez, this place looks kind of tired, it doesn't matter how good your interior is going to be. We're the opposite. If the outside looks great, they're going to give you a little more grace on the interiors, right? So if we do close on this, We'll spruce up the exterior, we'll bring in the professional management, and we will budget for the interior rehabs, but we will plan on actually not spending the money for probably another three years, right? And this property, again, it's not a, this is why we like the light to moderate value value add, especially in this environment, is the units are in good enough condition where we can still lease them without spending a ton of money on them, right? So, I would not at this point buy something where the units have to be renovated in order to get them leased because now you're in a position where if it doesn't work, you have to spend a ton of money just to get your property cash flowing. Whereas we're looking at value add projects now, okay, we can walk in, we cash flow day one, there's upside just in maybe leasing or management. And we can plan on flat rent growth for three years and still have a, a good performing asset. And then Maybe in six months, we do renovate a unit and see if we get a rent bump. If we do, great, we'll do some more. If we don't, we just wait until the market shifts, but we'll still raise that capital up front and bring that capital in in the beginning. So that's how the strategy shifts going into a recession. You know, up until a couple of months ago, you bought a property, you got in there, you started renovating units as quickly as you can, and probably in most cases, as quickly as you get, as long as you did your numbers right, as quickly as you renovated them, you had them leased for a higher amount and all was good we can't bank on that anymore. And so we're, we've changed it to underwriting. We know we can always improve management, but we're not sure if the market's going to support big bumps in rents anymore. In fact, there's a good probability it won't for a little while. So we're still planning on doing it, but we're just not planning on getting the benefits of it for maybe three years down the road. I would say that our strategy is very similar to yours. We're looking at about 12 to 18 months of zero rent increases. So we're still going to have the money to improve the units. But as you mentioned, it's if you have to improve them and spend money in order to lease them, then it's a risky investment. Mm-hmm. The only tweak from your strategy, I would say, is that we we will carry on re- renovations with what I called renovation on demand. So okay, yeah. we will have... Basically, instead of renovating ahead of time and then trying to find a tenant, we're going to bring a tenant and show them the model unit that's going to be renovated and say, okay, if you want this model unit, renovated unit, it takes us about 10 days, 14 days to renovate it. This is the price. Or if you want classic unit, and sometimes we'll have that to show him or her said, okay, this is the price. And I can tell you that a few weeks ago, and we're talking again, recording mid-May. So during April, we actually had someone that said, I'm willing to pay more for a renovated unit. I don't want to walk on a carpet when I enter the apartment. And so we we did that. And I think that's also a good way of approaching it where if someone is signing on the lease and they're willing to pay more, then why not? Yeah, that's a really smart way to do it. I, I would definitely say that's a good way to do it. Well, Andrew, let's talk a little bit about process. And we don't have a lot of time, but just in the uh, last few minutes that we have, when you're repositioning a property during an economic crisis, and I think you covered some of it, what do you think you would do differently? And also, what tools do you use 
So it can really help you focus on the right parts of the repositioning process in the best way given our today's environment. We, yeah, so the, the first thing we, we look at now is, is ways to do a repositioning, spending as little money as possible to do that. So again, that makes management repositions or management plays the most preferred because again, you don't really have to spend money to do that. You just bring in experience and know-how and market knowledge. You know, and as far as tools, you know, our property management company uses Yardi, but then we also subscribe to Esri. So we can get very detailed market data on rents and crime rates and median income levels and, and all of those kind of things. You know, and then as far as managing contractors, that's something we, we're still trying to figure if there's a more sophisticated way to do that. But we, we just keep track of really everything on Excel as far as managing our renovation budgets and contractors and all of those kind of things. But yeah, really, I'd say, you know, Yardi and Esri are probably our two main tools that we use for evaluating the markets. And then our, we also just do our own surveys. You know, if we, we've identified the closest 10 competitors to a property that we either own or are going to purchase, we'll call those competitors or even do some site visits and try to figure out exactly what we're competing against. I mean, there's, you can get all the data in the world, but there's nothing that quite compares with just showing up in person and seeing what you're looking at, right? Because, you know, the, the Esri data won't tell you that this beautiful apartment complex, when everyone looks out their front window, they see 18 cell phone towers and a wastewater treatment plant, right? So there's things that you just don't notice until you show up. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. I think we have completed our interview and now, well, almost completed, we have arrived at the lightning round questions. So first one, Andrew, what's your favorite hobby? Favorite hobby is definitely backcountry skiing. So that's where we say, forget the ski lift. We're going to go climb it and then ski it. So. Well, you can't go, you can't ski anywhere these days. You probably missed that. Actually, I was skiing three days ago. We went and climbed one of the, the bigger mountains here in California. So. Oh, really? Wait, this is May 7th and it's shiny and warm. Yeah, so Mount San Gorgonio is the highest mountain in Southern California. It's 11,500 feet tall and there's it's still quite a lot of snow up there. We were up there on the 4th. Yep. Still and it's May. That's amazing. That's that amazing. Is- Good for you. Next question is, what's the one thing that people don't know about you? So you mentioned the ski instructor thing. So another hobby I have that most people don't know is splitting wood. We have a wood burning fireplace in our house and there's something really satisfying about taking a log and setting it on a stand and then just taking an ax and just splitting it and just listening to it crack and the woods flies apart. There's just something really satisfying about that. It's a great way to get stress out too. I didn't know it was a hobby. I don't know if I'd call it a hobby, but whenever the wood pile gets low, <laughs> I need to go out and do that. So it probably won't be happening much now that we're hitting summer. <laughs> Interesting. Well, Andrew, what do you wish you had known when you just started investing in real estate? Don't go buy a uh, C minus, mostly vacant property. Just go straight to the B's. <laughs> yes, they're a little bit more money, but it's more than worth it. Mm-hmm. All right. What's the number one advice that you have for real estate investors that want to scale their business and scale their portfolio? Relentless persistence. Don't give up. But part of that is patience, especially now. The last five years, we've all been saying, oh, deals are so tough to get. Well, that's about to change but you don't want to catch a falling knife. The time will come, you know, on the way up, it's better to sell a day early than to sell a day late. And on the way down, it's better to buy a day late than to buy a day early. So. 
Very, very good advice. All right. Well, Andrew, if one of our listeners or some of our listeners would want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Uh, of course, I'm on Bigger Pockets and LinkedIn, just like just about everybody else. Or you can just Google my name or Vantage Point Acquisitions. If you go to the Vantage Point Acquisitions website, there's a contact us form there that comes to my email. And that's probably the best way to actually uh, have a conversation or to really connect. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing that. All right. Perfect. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Hey, you're welcome. It was great talking with you. I enjoyed it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.